The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. The city of Ottawa, Canada, has pledged to spend almost $60 billion to achieve net zero by 2050. That's $60,000 for every man, woman, and child in the city. They're going to erect 710 industrial wind turbines, each over 100 meters high. Jay, you know, the city says that the vision of their climate plan is to take, quote, unprecedented collective action that transitions Ottawa to a clean, renewable and resilient city by 2050. Jay, will 710 industrial wind turbines actually help them accomplish that goal? No, it will have zero impact. The whole idea that the city of Ottawa could have any impact on the, uh, the temperature of our planet. And of course, they couldn't fit that many uh, wind turbines into the city of Ottawa. And all the money they spend would be basically flushing it down the toilet and impoverishing uh, every citizen in Ottawa. While I've been reading the wonderful reports that you have written uh, about Ottawa's insanity. It's kind of a cautionary tale as to other cities or states doing a similar insanity. So I, I kind of like it, and I'll be writing about it. And your report is absolutely terrific. But I'm very excited uh, about our guest today. I'll let you introduce him, but Howard Hayden began my education in so-called renewable energy, wind and solar, when in 2002, exactly 20 years ago, he wrote an outstanding book called The Solar Fraud. That was the beginning of my understanding of this topic that we're going to spend the next hour talking about. Yeah, yeah. He'll, he's a great guest. Just to let listeners know, if they want to take a look at the report that you mentioned that we wrote on the climate change master plan of the city of Ottawa, the $60 billion plan, we actually have it up on our website. And the website is icsc-canada.com. And it's right on the homepage. People can go there and you can see our assessment of what their $60 billion plan is going to accomplish. It's going to be disastrous, quite frankly. So, here is our guest, Dr. Howard Hayden, Professor of Physics Emeritus of the University of Connecticut. He's now living in Pueblo, and we've got him by telephone. He's a Colorado native, actually. He went back to Colorado after he spent 32 years teaching and doing research at the University of Connecticut. 
His research background is in accelerator-based atomic and molecular collisions. And Howard says, these are not the same. They're not the kinds of high energy accelerators used in particle research, okay? So Dr. Hayden is editor of the Energy Advocate, a monthly newsletter promoting energy and technology. And it's been running for 26 years. It's wonderful actually. And I'll include a link to it when this goes to podcast on Monday. Dr. Hayden is author of, among other publications, just like you said, The Solar Fraud, Why Solar Energy Won't Run the World. He also wrote a primer on CO2 and climate, a primer on renewable energy, and my favorite book, Bass Ackwards, How Climate Alarmists Confuse Cause with Effect. And we'll include links to all of these books under the program. So, Howard, thank you for coming on. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's going to be kind of fun talking about wind turbines. Howard, the vast majority of Americans still believe that wind energy is both economical and helpful to add to our grids. Both of these beliefs are completely false. Tell our audience briefly why this is true and how they might tell their friends how to refute it in their social circles. Well, let's consider first the nature of the power from from wind. To make a long story short, if the wind speed doubles, say from five meters per second up to 10 or from seven and a half up to 15 or something like that, the power output actually goes up by a factor of eight. That is, if it produces, I'll just pick up some numbers here. If it produces 100 kilowatts at 10 meters per second, if you go up to 20 meters a second, it produces uh, eight times 100, that's 800 uh, megawatts. Well, actually, that's way, way, way high. Uh, I should have said kilowatts instead of megawatts. Anyway, so the the wind power varies very dramatically with wind speed. It's not an all, uh, it's not a zero or all kind of a consideration. It's a it's just a very dramatic relationship between the two. If we read what people write, and they write a whole lot about wind and solar. They say, oh, the price is coming down, the price is coming down, it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Well, what would you pay for a kilowatt hour of energy from uh, from the power station right now? Well, I typically pay about 14 cents. What would I pay for a kilowatt hour of energy from a wind turbine when there's no wind? I couldn't buy a kilowatt hour for a million bucks. They're telling you that the price is getting cheaper, but that's when the winds are strong. When the winds aren't strong, well, then you have to fill in with something. And uh, that something is usually coal or natural gas in, in, uh, around here, for example. Not quite sure what you have in Ottawa. Presumably you have something from Hydro-Quebec, but I don't know. They are presenting a very incomplete picture about wind. Yeah, well, they don't actually have have the turbines yet, but they are planning to put up 710 turbines over 100 meters high. Of course, it it can never happen. I mean, it's really, it's just a huge joke. They would have the money to do it. They don't have the space to do it. It's never going to happen. But Howard glossed over a point about 
when you double the wind speed, you get eight times more energy, and that creates tremendous instability with regard to the electric grid. That really might sound terrific to our listeners that, gee, when you double from 10 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour, you get eight times as much energy. But that's not a good thing, is it? No, it isn't. And of course, another way to look at it is that if the wind speed cuts in half, you get one-eighth as much power. In other words, you dropped 87.5%. So uh, yeah, the, the instability is, is a very big argument against much wind penetration. And another thing I didn't point out is that when people build power plants, like maybe they're running natural gas or coal or something like that, what they do is they do some economic calculations and say, well, what do I have to sell electricity for uh, in order eventually to cover all of my expenses, including the purchase of the material, the you know, all of the equipment and so forth? Well, if suddenly something jumps in and provides power some of the time, that means you're cutting down on the number of hours that you're producing full power that therefore necessarily increases your kilowatt hour cost. Things are just not as pretty as, as the, the wind proponents like to pretend. Why do the electric utilities seem to like to have wind in their portfolio? It doesn't make sense. It creates instability. They have to have 100% backup with dependable gas or coal. Why uh, do so many of the utilities look forward to adding uh, turbines in, into their system? Well, they get very big benefits from the government, you know, reduced taxes and various kinds of subsidies for doing so. I mean, wind and solar get various kinds of subsidies. Now, one of them is installation tax credit. In other words, they get a tax credit for having installed the thing. Then they also get a production tax credit of so many cents per kilowatt hour. And what that does is it makes wind and solar for the, for the same reason, unrealistically low. It puts on an unrealistically low price. Well, then the, the power company doesn't have to pay much for the wholesale power. That's because of all the subsidies. So they, they, they like getting uh, free energy to put on the grid, even if it's, uh, if it's a hassle to deal with. It's a gigantic scam. And it's been going on for a couple decades. And the public, they continue to think the wind is free. Build a windmill. I mean, after all, we've been using uh, windmills to grind grain. We use the wind to sail boats. Uh, it's been around forever, and we've, we've harnessed it. But it would appear to make no sense whatsoever on our electric grid. Terry Ciccioni and I wrote a book called A Hitchhiker's Journey Through Climate Change, uh, in which we tried to explain the whole climate change situation to uh, younger people. And we came up with a rule of thumb that uh, nobody has challenged. And that rule of thumb is that if you're going to put wind or solar 
on any of the three electric grids, there's an east, a west, and a Texas, you had better back it up 100% with an amount of uh, coal or natural gas or possibly nuclear power that's running full out all the time for when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, if that's uh, also an increment. And if more people understood this, they would realize that for every kilowatt of power of wind that's added to an electric grid, you've got to spend essentially twice as much money to install other equipment. The, the grid has to be balanced. So it's, it's really amazing to me that the lobbies that have created all those tax incentives that you just described uh, are so powerful and have not been thwarted by actually the physics of the situation, which uh, you know so well and have written about. One minor correction there, you don't have to run them full out, but basically you have to have them running somewhere near, I'm going to say 50%, because they may be called on to increase the power, they may be called on to decrease their power to keep the load balanced. A lot of people don't really understand that uh, the electricity that goes into the grid is equal to the electricity that is used on an instantaneous basis. That is, there's, there's no storage in the grid whatsoever. The power that goes in equals the power that goes to your uh, motors and lights and heaters and all the other things at exactly the same time. So keeping the grid balanced is, uh, is what they have to do. And the grid runs at something like 99.9% reliability. Now, 99.9% reliability means that the grid is uh, turned off in whatever your location is for no more than about eight hours a year. And they shoot for 99.99% reliability, and that's kind of what I get here where I live in Pueblo. The trick is to have a reliable grid, and everybody is working toward an unreliable grid with all the wind and solar that they're uh, demanding. There's another issue here, too, and that is that there are quite a number of states in the United States that have plans for zero power from coal or oil by the year, well, some of them say 2030, 2035, or something like that. And they're going to fill it in all with uh, wind and solar, and they always say other, without ever specifying what other is. It's like uh, maybe they have pixie dust. We had Ron Stein on the show, an engineer from California, uh, a week or so ago, and he said that when you count the actual production emissions that are put out when you actually make an electric vehicle and you actually count the emissions that are used to produce the electricity, to charge the electric vehicle, and then you talk about disposal and everything else, that you don't actually save on greenhouse gases. When you're looking at a electricity grid, if you're bringing in wind turbines and you have to have backup and you count all the construction of the wind turbine, the materials, 
mining, everything else, and the eventual disposal, do they actually have a net reduction in greenhouse gases when they bring in industrial wind turbines? I'm not exactly uh, sure on that because I haven't counted for all of the fuel use in producing uh, all the wind turbines and the cement and all that sort of stuff. But the, the upshot is that it doesn't make a whole lot of difference, lot of whether, difference. We, whether we put a lot of uh, CO2 in the air or not, because the, the effect of adding a little bit more CO2 to the air, even doubling it, uh, will have a very, very trivial effect on the climate. It's all for naught. And especially for a little place like Ottawa with, with a million people, uh, which is something like uh, one seven thousandth of the uh, world's population, or something like that. Uh, it's it's the the effect is absolutely negligible. There there's just no point in doing it. Yeah, I calculated the amount of CO two. If Ottawa were to disappear from the map, humanity's emissions would change by point zero one four percent. And Pat Michaels did a calculation and said, if, I, if we met our net zero target and kept it all the way to the end of the 21st century, if you're using the magic model from the EPA, it would result in a temperature change of one ten thousandth of a degree. So, you know, it'd be interesting, Howard, to actually figure out, okay, for one ten thousandth of a degree, it costs $60 billion. I wonder what it would cost to keep temperatures below a one and a half degree rise. Probably talking about like a, I think somebody calculated it was over a hundred trillion. Have you heard any numbers? <laughs> uh, no, not no, I haven't. Uh, in other words, uh, the, what what I what I deal with is the the physics. I mean, I recognize that the costs are extremely high, but um, it's 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 the science that just doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. Why do you think? The Biden administration is so set on uh, promoting wind turbines across the nation when clearly from a technical standpoint, from an economic standpoint, they make zero sense. Do you have an opinion politically why this administration is promoting something so ridiculous? No, I, I, I don't deal in politics a whole lot, but I, I would just say that um, these people probably got all their understanding of physics by walking by a science building once. (laughs) That uh, by osmosis. So they walked by the building and uh, vapors came out of it, uh, giving them some technical education. And of course, uh, I think that's really partly of of a very good answer that the administration really has no clue uh, how wind works, the physics of uh, developing energy from uh, wind and the economics of requiring the backup. I've had a theory for a long time that they do know enough to know the plan will fail and ultimately they'll have to ration energy if they have enough wind and solar making the grids unstable and having ultimately inadequate energy the government would get to ration it. And I think that's uh, very likely a goal of this administration. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's going to happen very soon in uh, England and Germany. 
mm-hmm. because uh, because well, uh, Germany has decided to ban all nukes, and so has England, and they are banning coal, and they they think they're going to get everything from wind and solar, but uh, Germany is going to have this pipeline bringing them natural gas from Russia. And when Gospodin Putin decide to stop that, man, they they don't have energy. Mm, yeah, exactly. You'd laugh to hear that one of the scientists I work with met with our previous environment minister a couple of environment ministers ago, and uh, this scientist was explaining some of the problems with the climate science of the climate scare, and the minister said to my scientist friend, he said, "Science plays no role on this file." <laughs> That's a, that is astounding absolutely astounding well Howard one of the things that's puzzled me that I'm sure everybody in our audience has heard that wind turbines uh, kill a lot of birds and a lot of bats and yet I've not heard any environmental groups speak up in opposition to wind turbines on the basis of something that should be near and dear to them, and that's the preservation of wildlife. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I, I, I can't ex- understand their motivation, of course, but uh, you're, you're very right that the wind turbines do kill lots of birds and bats. Uh, the, the bats are especially important for uh, removing bugs <laughs> from the air. They they gobble up bugs like crazy. Uh, raptors are the the birds that are the most likely. Well, I don't say maybe more likely to get hit by wind turbines simply because a raptor's eyes look forward. Now all predators have eyes that look forward, so they can see their prey. The birds that are prey for other species, let's say, have got um, eyes in the side of their head and they see things coming from all directions. The eyes of uh, bunnies, for example, are are like that, whereas the eyes of a dog look forward. Now, um, if you're flying into a wind turbine, you've, you've got these three blades that are going around and the tips of the blades are going uh, up to something like 180 miles an hour, which would be what, let's call it 250, 300 uh, kilometers an hour. They're really moving fast. But if a bird of prey is just flying forward, he might not see that blade coming at him from the side, so to speak. Whereas the, uh, the, the birds with omnidirectional eyes uh, can, can see those things. So it's it's the birds of prey that uh, people worry about a lot more than than, than say the sparrows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. In California, there's been called the Altamont Pass Wind Resource Area. And as I say, that's in California. It was established in 1982, and it contains 5,400 wind turbines. It has the highest numbers and rates of raptor kills of any wind facility in the world. And I'll just read you a quote from this report that was put out by the Center for Biological Diversity. They say wind turbines at the Altamont Pass 
kill an estimated 880 to 1300 birds of prey each year, including 116 golden eagles, 300 red-tailed hawks, 380 burrowing owls, and additional hundreds of other raptors, including kestrels, falcons, vultures, and other owl species. You know, Howard, we hear from wind turbine supporters, they say, oh, well, cats kill lots of birds too, but I've never seen a cat kill a golden eagle, have you? Not even in my dreams. <laughs> no, yeah, well, that, that just, uh, that's, very, that's a very good point, Tom. Cats kill sparrows and, and uh, various kinds of small birds, but they don't kill raptors. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, uh, where we live, a, uh, a cat out in the open could easily become a victim for a, uh, for a raptor because uh, there, there's, we don't have a lot of tree cover around here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, so they're, they're, they're easy prey. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, if you do the math, 116 golden eagles per year, and they've been open for 40 years. You know, that's right, 40 years. So they're killing thousands of golden eagles from that one farm alone. Yeah. You mentioned bats, and a lot of people aren't aware that the wind turbines kill bats without the blade striking uh, the bat. Uh, just the change in air pressure around the turbine uh, is enough to uh, to destroy a bat. And a lot of them are indeed uh, killed that way. And again, the environmental groups totally ignore it. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm aware of that uh, being the case. Uh, I, I haven't seen uh, corpses to analyze them and, and look at it. But, but yeah, they... Uh, evidently, what happens is uh, when a bat flies into the wake of a of a turbine blade, uh, pressure is suddenly just a whole lot lower, and they suffer from something like uh, blood vessel rupture or something like that, and it's not good for them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you know, it's interesting, Howard. I was reading in one place that it's very bad PR to have all these dead birds and bats lying around the bottoms of turbines. So they clean them up just before dawn. They also say that a lot of animals like foxes will have a feast. It's kind of like they're McDonald's. They show up and they have all dead birds to pick up. So it's a bad PR thing. And apparently they clean it up before the tourists get a chance to see. Howard, most of our audience would be aware that you could only put so many turbines uh, on an acre of land or multiple acres, as we're talking about the ones that are uh, they're proposing in Ottawa, which uh, I've run the numbers, cannot conceivably uh, have that many. Could you explain uh, how the turbines uh, interfere with each other and how you calculate how many turbines can fit on a few acres of land? Yeah, I'll be glad to. Um, well, let's say we have an acre of land, or uh, maybe you people up in Canada are wise enough to use hectares. But in any case, um, you could put in something like 10,000 wind turbines, little bitty ones on an acre of land. Those would be small ones. If you go to bigger turbines, you have to put them farther apart. And they're typically put something like 10 diameters apart. I read a paper once, uh, a good engineering paper, where they said that the, the really very best way to do it 
is to put the turbines uh, 15 diameters apart. Now, let me, let me explain what happens here. If you double the diameter of a wind turbine, you get four times as much power out of the turbine. But if you have an array of them, you have to put them now twice as far apart in both directions. So you're covering four times the land area. So to get four times the power in four times the land area, so it winds up being a certain amount of power per unit land area. The answer to that is you get about five kilowatts per acre average power, or that's about 12 and a half kilowatts per hectare average power around the clock around the year. Uh, that's sort of independent of the size of the wind turbine. So this project that they have for putting in, what, 739 wind 700, turbines? 710, yeah. <laughs> 710. Well, you can put in uh, 365, uh, you know, half as many wind turbines if you put them uh, just a little bit farther apart. If you... Um, just put in bigger wind turbines farther apart. But it's just sort of an engineering consideration. Um, how big should they be? You know, and how much can you handle? What's the cost of manufacture? What's the cost of installation? What's the cost of repair? And that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So a given land area is going to give you just so much power. Right. And when I say it's five kilowatts per acre, I mean in an excellent site. Mm-hmm. I don't mean yeah. a run-of-the-mill site. I mean an right. excellent site. When the wind is giving you appropriate output. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we have to go for a we have to go for a break now. And but when we come back, I'd like to ask you that when one considers the amount of steel, cement, aluminum, fiberglass, etc., required to build a wind turbine, can you really call them renewable? Can we address that when we get back after the break, Howard? I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. 
One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Had they taken a poll in Philadelphia in 1776, they would have scrapped the whole idea of independence. A third of the country was for it, a third of the country was against it, and the remaining third, well, in the old human way, was waiting to see who came out on top. Those are the words of David McCullough. Join us back at AmericaOutloud.com and find out which of today's politicians are in which third. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Our guest today is Professor Emeritus Howard Hayden from the University of Connecticut on phone with us from Pueblo, Colorado, where he actually grew up. So Howard, when you actually look at the amount of steel, cement, aluminum, fiberglass, et cetera, required to build a wind turbine, which will only last a certain number of years, would you call wind turbines renewable? That's a kind of a complicated question. There was once a, uh, a post that somebody had put up talking about how you could never get the energy back out of a wind turbine that you put in to build it. And there was some kind of accounting for the amount of energy that went into uh, cement and all that kind of stuff. What I went over was that uh, you could recover the, the energy that they were talking about in about two years usage or something like that. But uh, on the other hand, that calculation doesn't involve uh, things like what do you do when the wind turbines uh, are uh, taken out and what happens with the tremendous uh, cement base that you have and uh, what happens with the uh, disposal of the wind blades because those blades are usually made largely of fiberglass, which is in, in no way uh, recyclable. Well, it's fiberglass epoxy uh, mix kind of thing. It, 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 that isn't recyclable. Uh, so it's, it's a big landfill problem. If you look at it, even the sun's energy isn't renewable. It's just long-lasting. Uh, nuclear energy, if we use nukes, isn't renewable. We just happen to have enough energy to... And, uranium and thorium to last for uh you know hundreds of millions of years or something but it's <laughs> it's not renewable <laughs> no, but that's pretty and, good <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty good i'm not impressed with the uh, uh with the word renewable mm -hmm. uh well, now, that brings me that brings me to my next uh, question 
if the fairy tale about Pinocchio uh, were actually true, uh, virtually everybody in the wind industry uh, would have the longest uh, noses imaginable. They are the biggest liars. And the proof of that is that every wind turbine they build, they put a usually a brass plate uh, on the, uh, the turbine at the bottom near the base where uh, people walking by can read it. And they write on that or engrave in that brass plate the amount of energy that turbine uh, can produce. And then they add up all their turbines on a wind farm or in the whole United States, and they tell you the capacity of creating energy from wind. But the number they put on every single plate that I've ever seen or heard about is the amount of energy that the turbine would produce if it was turning 24-7 every hour of the day at the optimal speed. Because when the wind is not strong enough, uh, the turbine produces no energy. When the wind is blowing too strong, the turbine is unstable and uh, it is literally shut off. So the numbers they put on are meaningless. And I think in your book, uh, Solar Fraud, that you published 20 years ago, you were looking at efficiency numbers uh, in the 17 to 20% range, which is to say, not only did you not get the energy recorded on that brass plate, uh, you were lucky to get a fifth of that. And I recall you also calculated probably with the best turbine, the best efficiency you could get is somewhere in the uh, 30 to 35% range. I remember one paper that I uh, read of yours, uh, you said that conceivably uh, one could achieve 40% efficiency. Would you comment on that? Yeah, well, the first thing to, to do is to talk about, you got to make a distinction between two separate things. Efficiency would have to do with uh, what fraction of the wind energy goes into electricity. And that has an upper limit of 59%. That's called the Bates limit. The other one uh, is what's called the capacity factor. And that is averaged over the year, what fraction of the nameplate power is the average power? Okay, and now that one is a, uh, a figure that can be engineered. Now, let me explain. Suppose you were to take a, a child's uh, pinwheel and attach it to a one megawatt generator. It would produce no power whatsoever. So at the end of the year, uh, you'd have zero uh, divided by one megawatt, which is going to be zero. So the capacity factor would be zero. Now let's turn it around and put a 100-meter uh, uh, diameter wind uh, turbine or blades um, on a child bicycle generator, generates one watt. Uh, you could always generate one watt 
with that, even in the very, very slightest breeze, and the thing would just continue turning anyway, you can get one watt. So the capacity factor would be 100%. So now you have two absolutely stupid designs, but they, they nail down the ends of the curve, so to speak. So originally, when they were putting it in those wind turbines at Altamont Pass, they were shooting for about uh, 20% capacity factor, and that is, in fact, what they got because they had, uh, they had a large generator run by two small fan so that the, the capacity factor was more like the uh, kid's pinwheel. Then they decided later on that it's much better economics to design their wind turbines around about a 35% capacity factor. Uh, They could go higher, they could go lower, but it's all just a matter of design. But if you go to either end of that thing, you can either have uh, a very stupid wind turbine at uh, zero capacity factor or a very stupid one at 100% capacity factor, but you have to choose something in the range of, oh, 35, 40% uh, turns out to be uh, about what you could, what you really ought to shoot for mm-hmm. from the standpoint of all economics and that kind of thing. No matter how you slice it, what they're writing on these plates and the numbers they add up for what a wind farm will produce, which is, they say, worth all the uh, government subsidies, is uh, always a a fraction of what they say. So, I mean, there isn't a single brass plate on a wind turbine in America that is not a bold-faced lie. And they just continue to get away with doing that. So they plan a big wind farm with so many turbines, and they get uh, huge subsidies. I think mostly it works out to the fact that uh, you and I, with our taxes, are paying about half of the total cost of a wind farm, and they're uh, lying totally as to what that wind farm will actually produce. Yeah, it's a little bit like when we were kids. Everyone was talking about a car that's got a 400-horsepower engine. Well, you're not using 400 horsepower most of the time, <laughs> but it's, uh, I, 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 one thing I have to uh, pick an argument with you, Jay, on is that uh, you say these people are the worst liars in the world. Uh, there, are, oh, <laughs> there are lots of liars for lots of reasons, uh, many called politicians. Yeah. Well, you know, Howard, when you look at power plants, traditional power plants like coal-fired power, they can last like half a century. How long would a typical industrial wind turbine actually last? Well, they're figuring on something like uh, 20, 25 years or something like that. Uh, The biggest problem with them is the gearbox. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because... When you put in a big turbine, it has to turn slowly. And I mean, those blades go around at uh, just three or four revolutions per minute. Yet the generator, uh, it's typically got to turn at somewhere around 
at least 600 and just depending on design uh, revolutions per minute. So they have to have a gearbox that changes the revolution rate from you say three up to 600. So that's a factor of 200 in the gearbox and they, you know, they, something can go wrong in there and then they, they can get too hot or they can wear out. If they get too hot, the oil starts to burn. And you've probably seen some videos of wind turbines where they had a big fire on board. And that yeah. always comes from the gearbox. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's pretty tough to put those fires out. Not only are they 60 stories high, but they have all kinds of materials in there that burn or just you simply can't extinguish, right? Yeah, well, uh, I suppose it gets hot enough because you probably have a lot of aluminum and the aluminum can burn. But, uh, of course, the fire starts with this, uh, just the oil burning. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it just spreads because there's there's nothing up there to stop it. Now, one thing I think listeners would like to hear is the real story with with regards to wind power as to what happened in Texas last February. I mean, how much of the blame do you think can go to their reliance on wind? Well, a whole lot of it, uh, but it, th- there's something else that, that came in there too. And that is that um, the natural gas is a just-in-time delivery system. You don't store natural gas on site. What comes through the pipe is what you can use. And they... Um, some law in Texas, or maybe it was a federal law, came in which said that the pumps that pump the fuel could not use the methane or the natural gas from the well itself to run the pump. They had to get in power from the grid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is all in this stupid excuse about global warming, right? Mm-hmm. So what happened was that some of the some of the power went out, which was supplying power to those pumps to pump in natural gas. So the natural gas power stations were also down. Mm-hmm. And then there was one more thing that, that happened too, and it was just a failure to winterize. There was uh, some kind of a control at a nuclear power plant that froze up, and so they had to shut that plant down for a while till they solve that problem not nice but but a whole lot of it was due to the fact that the a lot of the power on the grid feeding those natural gas pipelines was actually from the the wind <laughs> so they were running natural gas pipelines with the wind <laughs> even though it's supposed yeah. to be a backup, a backup to the wind <laughs> i mean yeah it's it, it's all really very silly but that's that's what you get when you have, let's call it uh, central control, uh, making all the decisions, and the people on the ground who are there just get over overruled by the executives, as it were. Mm-hmm. Well, the Wall Street Journal said 700 people died in total as a result of that blackout across Texas last February, and by Ottawa standards, yeah. Texas is not cold. I mean, today it warmed up to minus 17. So, <laughs> you know, I think that, that still, that's cold. And so I would assume that we'd have a pretty significant catastrophe in Ottawa if we based our electrical supply and our heating and everything on, on wind turbines, surely. 
Yeah, by uh, by minus 17, do you mean minus 17 Celsius, probably? Yeah, that's right. And today was the uh, warmest day in quite a few. Yeah, the, uh, the coldest I've ever seen here in Pueblo, which is 100 miles from the southern border of the state, was, well, officially it was 31 below Fahrenheit. The guy on the radio said 32 below and my brother and I did not go to school that day. Yeah, <laughs> that's Colorado. I never but, would have thought I'd get that. Well, far. we're beating up on wind uh, so badly here, and it's warranted. I would be interested in knowing, Howard, where you think a windmill or a wind turbine in this day and age would have uh, some value to individuals or to society. If I lived off the grid, and there are people who live off the grid in various places in the mountains, and maybe even out in the plains, I don't know, uh, I, would have, uh, I would have a wind turbine, I would have solar, and I would have uh, battery backup. It would cost an arm and a leg to put all that stuff in, but I would not go, go without power. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting, and, and people ought to pay attention to this. When you read about some kind of a natural disaster, a flood, a tornado, a hurricane, uh, big fires, or something like that, what is the first thing that the news people say about the event? They say there are 200,000 people without power. Mm-hmm. And somehow that doesn't translate into a caution that you really ought to have reliable power. I'll tell you a, a rather amusing use of wind turbines here in central Ohio. There are a number of car dealers that have relatively small wind turbines on their property. And in their ads, when they're trying to get people to come to their place to buy an automobile, they say, just come to the wind turbine on road such and such. It's amazing these turbines, you know, are not anything like those that are uh, built, you know, to put energy on the grid. I think most of these uh, turbines will run a light bulb or two, but they're great uh, landmarks and I get a kick out of them every time I drive by. You just shut down one of my one of my bright ideas. People don't like those high voltage power lines going all over the place, and they want them uh, put underground because they're unsightly. My idea was to put all the wind turbines underground because they're unsightly. <laughs> yeah, that would. <laughs> yeah, apparently they're also terrible to live beside. I mean, you hear about people getting migraines and panic attacks and all sorts of things when you have this constant infrasound, the low frequency sound, penetrating their homes and their whole body. I mean, is that exaggerated, or would you want to live beside a sixty-story high industrial wind turbine? I'd far rather live by a nuke. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I swear. I had a, an interesting discussion because I went to the opening of a wind farm here in southern Colorado some years back, and I talked to some of the engineers. And one of the engineers told me uh, something interesting about the blades. As the blade 
crosses uh, in front of the post that's holding him up, in front of the tower that's holding him up. There's a big interruption in the wind flow, and what that does is it puts a thump into the ground. So it goes thump, 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 and that's a low frequency, and those sounds travel forever. Low frequency sound travels a long distance. I mean, you can hear a rock band going boom, 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 a long way uh, farther than you can hear the guy who's singing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, what they have in some of the wind turbines, and this isn't all of them, I'm sure, but uh, some of the modern wind turbines, is a thing that actually rotates the blade on its own axis so that uh, as it goes by the tower, uh, it's rotated to present minimum cross-section to the wind. And that provides uh, less of a thump into the ground. So mm -hmm. the kind of noise you're talking about is certainly serious enough that some engineers have attempted to do what they can to solve it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you might remember in Michael Moore's film, planet of the human he actually shows the environmental impact of making so-called green energy so i mean when you actually look at the impact of all the mining that's required and the cobalt and rare earths and everything else would you say that these are green green energy would you say they're clean well overall probably not there, there's a big problem uh let me tell you about uh using all of those uh uh, rare earth minerals and cobalt and so forth, why they're necessary. What you have to have is a, uh, a strong magnetic field that rotates around inside of some stationary coils. And the conventional way to get the strong magnetic field was to uh, have a rotating coil through which you fed current and that when you make an electromagnet that rotates around, and then the uh, that would be a rotating magnet inside a inside a coil. Well, when you get very very fussy about efficiency and say I've got to have more efficiency, what you do is you substitute permanent magnets, and you don't get very good permanent magnets out of out of iron, but you do out of some of these fancy dancy alloys. So that's that's where those rare earths come in, and those magnets are really strong, and that's that's wonderful technology. But you do have to uh, use those exotic materials to make the magnets. Especially this is important for uh, for uh, the wind turbines. Mm -hmm. And I understand they're coming largely from China in the case of rare earths and cobalt that are mined with child labor in the Congo and, you know, in terrible environmental conditions and human rights abuses. So, I mean, this is hardly what you'd call uh, responsible energy sources, really. Yeah, I would well, agree with that. Howard, what you just said about the, uh, the rare earths being required to get the best uh, magnets I'm guessing is something that most of our listeners didn't weren't fully aware of. Everybody has heard of rare earths. They don't necessarily know what the names of all the uh, the minerals and elements are. Uh, but I'm I'm guessing while they know that rare earths are required for uh, wind turbines and uh, in solar farms, 
I'm guessing most people did not understand uh, the why of it and what you just explained so simply with regard to these uh, various minerals creating really powerful magnets that are absolutely necessary in wind farms. So that's, that's really very helpful and appreciate it. Well, I, well, let me add one more thing. When you have a power station burning coal or natural gas, you feed, it, you feed in some steam or in some faces you feed the gas in just straight into a turbine and it turns at a constant RPM. Now that constant RPM is why you get a constant 60 cycle per second variation in, the, uh, in your electricity. Okay, it goes positive, negative 60 times a second because of a constant RPM. Well, you don't have that when you have a wind turbine. The workaround is for the, the generator to generate DC, well, it generates AC, converts it into DC with rectifiers, and then it uses an oscillator, an, an electronic oscillator, to put it back into AC at exactly the right frequency. What that means is that when your turbine is turning slower, you can still get some, uh, you can still get a voltage out of it because you've got a very strong magnet. And that's why they have to have those uh, super strong magnets. I should add one more thing, um, just for a personal thing. When I was, uh, I guess I was 15, I went to work on a ranch out in Deer Trail, Colorado. And the guy was driving me out there and he drove over this one hill. And he said, that's our, that's our ranch down there. And I said something about a, a windmill over there. Now, this is just a water pumping windmill. And I uh, said something nice about it. And he said, you know, if I could get electricity over there, I'd take out that, that windmill in the next five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Probably use it for scrap, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because it was, it was a quite troublesome thing to deal with. Well, in fact, now for similar situations, what they use to pump water out of the ground, what they're doing is just getting water for cattle, pump it out of the ground. They, they use uh, solar cells with uh, big storage batteries, and that way they can provide a steady flow of water that they need. Right. And of course, it doesn't matter if it's intermittent because that's not required in that usage we have to end the show at that point howard that was really fun and <laughs> wow what an incredible waste of money 710 industrial wind turbines for a city of a million people <laughs> crazy so this is our guest dr howard hayden professor of physics emeritus of the university of connecticut an expert in wind and solar power this is tom harris and dr jay lair signing out from the other side of the story mm -hmm.